You're listening to The Deadly Dose, hosted by Harini Bott and Megan Gesner. Okay, Megan, yes. I've got a story for you. <laughs> I'm ready. Are you ready? Because I want to say that it's definitely a thorough one. Let's say, let's put it at that. And we love thorough. We do love thorough on this podcast. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. I think this is the most research or work I've done for an episode ever, or at least in a while. Could be ever. Wow. <laughs> and it was totally yeah. not meant to be that way. Poison Pals, you'll come to learn that this is going to be our last episode. We're going to take a summer break. So hopefully this will be a good chunk of a send off for you. Something for you to chew yes. on for a while. Mm, nice and chewy. Yes, yes. All right. So without further ado, let's just jump right into it. July 8th, so in two days from now, is World Paramedics Day. So I'm going to be talking Ooh. about mm-hmm. – and you know what? I did this story and then I was like, let me just like research like maybe is it is it topical in any way? And then mm-hmm. I found mm-hmm. out like basically around the time we're recording it, it's World Paramedics Day. I was like, hell yeah. I didn't even plan that. Nice. <laughs> so perfect. Okay. So there was like – yeah, it's like a good timing situation mm-hmm. that this will apply to World Paramedics oh, Day. Okay. It will exactly apply to World Paramedics Day. <laughs> So I'm basically going to be talking about the history of the ambulance and paramedics, Ooh. but like a very specific part about paramedics. Uh, I will. I want to shout out, and I'll say my sources at the end, but what made this so in-depth in terms of research was I read a whole book <laughs> before doing this. So this nice. is kind of like a book yeah. report, and I highly, highly recommend reading this book. I will list the sources in the book at the end so it doesn't give it away. Okay. Okay. So it was a regular ass evening at Montefiore Hospital in Pittsburgh where John Moon worked as an orderly when two men came barging through the hospital doors. It was 1971, the year of the Pentagon Papers, and when Disney World opened and the very first Starbucks opened in Seattle. These all sound like things that would form the need for paramedics. <laughs> oh, truly. That's too much excitement for the for the country, for the world. I think people, Starbucks and Disney World, and I forgot the third The Pentagon thing, Papers. Yeah. Oh, my God. So many heart attacks. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but for Mr. Moon, 1971 would be the year that changed the trajectory of his life forever. John was 22 years old and working his second job since graduating high school. His first job was at the JNL steel mill, but the work was inconsistent and it didn't pay much. So at the advice of his colleague, he applied and was accepted to become an orderly at Montefiore Hospital. But again, this job also wasn't much. It was mainly shuffling patients to and from the surgery and emptying bedpans. But the pay was decent and he had a wife and baby at home, so he stuck with it. The men that rushed into the hospital were draped head to toe in white. John thought they were orderlies like him, but they had radios on their body. Hmm. So he told the patient who he was with, I'll be right back. And then he follows them around the corner. And he's almost run over by these men who are now rushing a patient on a stretcher down the corridor. They were receiving info from the nurse and shouting info back. The nurse nodded at them and then sprang into action. 
John is stunned because this nurse has barely ever looked him in the face, yet she was in full attention of these two men. These men were confident and they moved with a sense of purpose, knowing that they belonged. So John subconsciously follows these men all the way out of the hospital, not realizing where his feet is taking him. He has left this patient. This patient is like, I I can't even move (laughs) right now. (laughs) What's... What's driving him to follow these men? Is it sheer curiosity? Is it him being impressed? Is it him being like, y'all are stealing my thunder? What are you doing in this in this place? I've been working so hard. This nurse doesn't even know my name <laughs> totally. and she's following you guys like crazy. Well, you'll still find out. And when he stood outside of the hospital doors, he inadvertently said out loud, those are black guys. Okay. John Moon is black. I see. Okay. It was unheard of for black men to wander into a hospital as if they owned the place in a role that they occupied and controlled. Uh. Then two weeks later, two more men came into the hospital. Not the same men, but from the same place. He recognized them by their white jackets and radios, and they were intense. This time, they were working tirelessly to resuscitate a patient. Meanwhile, a doctor was following and taking orders from them. John is bewildered and mesmerized at the same time, trying to puzzle how the scene unfolding in front of him was even possible. He momentarily draws his eyes away from the chaos, and he looks at the badges. There's two badges on their jackets. The first one says, Freedom House Ambulance, and the second reads, Paramedic. All his life, John felt insignificant, overlooked, even made to feel like a nuisance who would never amount to anything. For the first time in his life, he felt like he was seeing an opportunity right in front of him where he could count. Becoming a paramedic was a way for John to feel seen, and he was going to do everything possible to make that happen. So I'll tell you now that this story is about the incredible black men who became America's first paramedics. Hmm. Okay. So there's clearly already some sort of job or system that existed before John Moon got involved at all. So um, I'm assuming you're going to tell us yeah. more about that. So just yeah. to make it clear, this is kind of like not a, a prelude, but basically John Moon is coming into this after the fact. So he's working. Freedom House is the ambulance service that is the first black paramedics. Mm-hmm. It starts in 1968, I believe, 1968. Mm-hmm. And this is 1971. So he is seeing them after they've already been in service after a few years. So we'll basically talk about how this even came to be and everything leading up to that. And this is the first black paramedics. Is it the first paramedics period? Because 1968 is a lot later than I thought Mm -hmm. these services would exist. It's the first. We'll get into it. But it's, yeah, it's the first paramedics, the first trained paramedics in the country in, in America. Wow. That's incredible. Okay. Okay, I'm listening. No more questions. No, no, no. Please ask questions. Okay, so a little bit about John, and this will also tie into the the Freedom House. So John Moon was born on April 2nd, 1949, and he was born on the unpaved side streets of the Pittsburgh Hill District, also called Buttermilk Bottom, bottom, also known as just the bottom. (laughs) The Hill was banished by decree and neglect, but early on, the 2000 African-American residents worked as help in the nearby mansion. So that's where the bulk of their work came from. But when the market took a beating and urban development kicked in, most of those big houses like that were occupied, obviously, by white people were gone, and thus so were the jobs. 
this was sort of the beginning of the end for Buttermilk Bottom. It grew to have this reputation of a slum. Drunk white men would go through, fire guns at basically these shacks that are just now shacks built of cinder blocks, stilts, tar paper roofs, kerosene lamps, and no indoor plumbing. The bottom was the result of this shiny new program that swept the nation called Urban Renewal. And the neighborhood, neighborhoods in which African-Americans lived were viewed as barriers to that progress. Grid lining by federal, local gov- government, and even private sectors were complicit in denying entire neighborhoods home loans. Urban renewal did not benefit the minorities who were constantly underserved and overcharged. Without access to home loans or mortgage rates, Blacks were unable to improve what they owned or buy elsewhere. So they're kind of stuck where they are. Neighborhoods like the bottom become segregated, they become ghettos, they become slums, and now the slums were being torn down with zero alternative housing solutions. Mm-hmm. John grew up in the midst of all of that. He lived in a single room with one bed that the entire family slept in. So his parents and his younger sister, June. Most days they went out, went without food, school, and shoes. John and June didn't know they were poor, but their mom knew. And that might have led her to her drinking. And then they have their dad, Clinton. While Clinton was at work or trying to find work, his mom would drink until eventually she drank herself to death when John and June were just kids. Soon after that, his father started taking him and his sister to this place with this nice lady. At this place, there was an actual playground. And this is a really beautiful part in the book where he just describes how it was so exciting for them. They, they didn't even have shoes. They didn't even go to school. So to see a real playground with swings and slides, they're just over the moon. He couldn't, John and June couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. His dad didn't need to ask them twice to go play while he attended to business inside. The following week, they came back to the same place. And before his dad could even suggest, John and June make a beeline for the playground. This time they played and they played until day turned to dusk. And that was when John became aware that it was late and they should probably head back and find their dad. So John takes his sister's hand and they walk back inside the building where that nice lady was. He didn't see his dad, so he asked the lady where his dad was. The lady kindly told John that his dad wasn't coming back. It was all too much to comprehend in that moment, but the panic set in immediately. His dad gave them up. Mm. John and Jean were immediately separated, but he tried to make the most out of it. At the orphanage, he got his first pair of shoes, he ate regular meals, and even went to school. He kept telling himself, you know, it's not all that bad. It's not all that bad. John and June stayed there until he was in high school when a distant aunt adopted them both. And that's when John received a second lease on life. Despite no longer living in the bottom post-orphanage, it was a difficult place to come from. Unemployment hovered at 14%. Education was scarce, making it difficult to find decent paying jobs. And even if you were educated, like John Moon was, there was this stink that traveled with you as soon as people found out that you were from the Hill. People didn't want to go to the Hill because of fear of being robbed or attacked by drug users or alcoholics, or at least that was the reputation. It was a neglected town, but the residents did what they could to help each other out. The Freedom House van had become a staple of the community. It was essentially a Meals on Wheels that drove around delivering meals to all who needed it. But the real issue was receiving proper medical care. Okay, so we'll pause right there on that story and then we'll come back. I want to talk about the history of the ambulance and how that sort of ties into the state of emergency medical services in the United States. So for centuries of wars and battles, people were slain on the battlefield and were just left to die. 
that's just how it was. And it didn't really occur to anyone to change that, meaning create a system to try and save the wounded so that they may live another day. It wasn't until the Napoleonic Wars that a revolutionary idea sprung from the mind of a shoemaker, a poor shoemaker named Dominique Leray. Leray was a shoemaker's son in France, but his father did not want him to also become a shoemaker. He wanted a better life for his son. So he sent him to Toulouse to become a medical apprentice. So one moment, Leray was a cobbler, and the next, he's quite literally the ward of a chief surgeon. And Leray showed tremendous talent and skill which eventually earned him a post in Napoleon's army. During the Napoleonic Wars, Leray was horrified by what he saw. Men stabbed with bayonets, gunshot wounds to the leg, or bleeding from a blast. Many weren't dead, though. They were simply wounded. So as a surgeon, every fiber in Leray's body was repulsed at not being able to cart these men off to safety and treat them. It was painfully clear to him that so many more lives could be saved. So in 1797, he pitched his idea to Napoleon himself that surgeons should be given the same horse-drawn carriages as artillery soldiers to cart off the wounded from battle. Whether out of the goodness of his heart or seeing a military benefit to recouping soldier numbers, Napoleon wholeheartedly agreed to this request. He called it Hôpital Ambulance, literally a walking hospital. In the same plan, Leray came up with a system to categorize wounded soldiers by severity, with the most severely wounded prioritized to be taken to the hospital first. He called it triage, which stems from the French root verb trier, which means to sort, which of course has become an invaluable tool in medicine ever since. But this whole system that Leray created didn't really catch on in the rest of the world until 1817. And then in in America, it would catch on even later. So in America, Cincinnati became the home of the very first civilian ambulance in 1868. But this ambulance was jank, so jank. Horse-drawn, no equipment, no trained medical personnel. Then a New York City physician, Edward Dalton, developed a brand new hospital-based ambulance. So before that, it wasn't tied to the hospital. It It was mostly run by the police, actually. So he developed a brand new hospital-based ambulance system in the 19th century, the first of its kind. And on June 4th, 1869, Dalton's ambulance hit the streets. When police were alerted of emergency, a runner from the precinct would dash over to the famous nearby Bellevue Hospital with a request for an ambulance. Two men at the hospital were always on standby, and then they would get the horse ready to head out. The wooden carriage was shiny black and everything was lit by oil lamps that swung as the horses galloped to their destination. And then my favorite is there was a foot-pedaled gong that served as a siren to alert people of an emergency to get out of the way. (laughs) Isn't that that so clever? I think that's so funny. Yeah. And then this is also interesting. The floor in the back was a stretcher. So it, it served as a floor, but also doubled as a stretcher that was designed to slide in and out when needed. And then inside was an array of equipment. So this is the first time they're even putting stuff in the ambulance. You have bandages, tourniquets, brandy for pain, etc. And a doctor, a real-life doctor. <laughs> Dalton's ambulance received 558 calls, everything from heart attacks to explosions. New Yorkers became accustomed to the sound of gongs and the sight of Dalton's black ambulances racing down the street. And it worked. Bellevue only lost four patients during the ride from the emergency site to the hospital. 
for the very first time, people who previously didn't have access to healthcare were getting medical care delivered to their door free of charge. Wow. Although that's not the case anymore. I know. I was. <laughs> I have nothing more to say. I was like, wow, how nice. How nice. <laughs> <laughs> but ambulance technology was not standardized. In other parts of the country, the ambulance was a hearse driven by a mortician. I mean, just imagine calling, you just have a heart attack, you call the ambulance, and then a hearse shows up and shoves you into the back. Terrifying. I would not even get in. I was just like, I'm good here. (laughs) (laughs) And in fact, many people did. They didn't want to be driven in a hearse, so they would call taxis, but then the taxis would take too long and as the story goes, so on and so forth. But this all changed with a man named Dr. Peter Safar. He is the father of CPR and our modern emergency services. If you ever wondered why regular people, i.e. non-medical professionals like teachers, flight attendants, electricians, and so on, are are able to be trained and now must be trained in CPR, it's because of Dr. Safar. Megan, I'm assuming you have taken a CPR class or have you ever had a job that required you to be CPR certified? I don't think I've ever had a job that required it of me, but I have taken two CPR classes in my life. Cool, cool. Um, I'm trying to think. I volunteered at a hospital in high school, and I'm like, did they ask that of me? Is that the first time? Maybe. Probably. I know I for sure did a CPR class at UCSD because they're just offering it for free. So I was like, why not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I can guarantee you that, yes, you did do CPR for the volunteer work because volunteers must be CPR certified. Oh, okay. Yeah. Then, yeah, I probably did that in high school. Nice, nice, nice. I don't know how to do that shit now. Good luck, everybody. <laughs> I mean, I have a I have a good enough idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Has, has the explicit knowledge stayed with me through all these years? No. Maybe, maybe the story will inspire you. Yeah, I should probably <laughs> go get certified again because it's a good skill to have. It is. It truly is. Okay. So, Dr. Peter Safar was an Austrian anesthesiologist. He was a fast walker and smiled easily. Honestly, that description reminded me of my dad. <laughs> I was like, okay. I, it's exactly what came to my mind. <laughs> and at 42 years old, he was already a legend. But back in 1942, Safar was a young 18-year-old boy in Vienna, where he was shipped off to a labor camp during World War II. While there, he was told by a Nazi captain that he must be outfitted immediately for the front as an infantryman. Safar knew this... Nazi soldier was basically asking him to sign his own death certificate. People who went to the front lines did not return. But then fate, God, or whatever you want to call it, intervened. While Safar was home on leave, he gets caught in this horrible storm that left his wool clothes soaked for days and sticking to his skin. The irritation to his skin resulted in a horrible eczema flare all over his body that got him hospitalized. Eczema saved his life. Mm, poor thing. Yeah, but it still sucks. This kept him off the front lines, but even when his eczema cleared, the doctors and the nurses kept him on the patient list at much risk to themselves for as long as they could. But then the Nazis dropped in for a surprise inspection. So Safari knew he needed to do something fast or they were going to send him out again. So he douses himself with a caustic ointment that sent his skin into a rage and could have easily killed him. Just the sight of him was so difficult to bear that the Nazi officers didn't even bat an eye to know that he was still on the patient list and actually ended up discharging him on medical leave. Wow. Lucky. Very, very lucky. Mm -hmm. 
Shortly after discharge, Safar took up a job as an orderly, just like John Moon would decades later, and then enrolled in medical school. Safar understood the privilege he had of escaping death, and so I think that's part of why he plunged himself into his work to basically wage war against Mm -hmm. death itself. And he worked until he was like in his 80s, like 88 or something. He was trained to become a surgeon and on track to be one of the best, but he left it for anesthesiology because he believed surgery would not progress if we don't have proper life support methods, which I think was makes sense. And as an anesthesiologist, Safar's entire world was about breathing. In the medical world, there's a phrase, if you don't have an airway, you don't have a patient. Safar deemed the current methods of resuscitation as completely useless. I did not know this, but before CPR, this was the method people use for resuscitation. So it's sort of like a Heimlich maneuver, but on the ground, you place the person face down on the ground and then push sharply down between their shoulder blades while tilting their head up. And then you flap their arms up and down behind their back like a bird. Interesting. (laughs) I don't know who thought that would help, but it didn't. (laughs) It didn't save anybody's life. But people still did it. They they stuck by this because, I don't know, because it's in a textbook, because it's taught in medical school. You know, I think that there comes to be – you have to have those people, those thinkers who question everything. You know what I mean? Like why? Why are we right. doing this? It doesn't work, so why? Just because it's what we've been doing, you know? So that was kind of the right. person Safar was. And given his exposure to World War II, he adopted the motto that even one more death is one too many. So he had seen enough. He decided to develop his own method. Then in October of 1966, Safar reads a fascinating study done by fellow doctor and respiratory researcher, Dr. James Alam. He discovered, Dr. James Alam discovered that we not only breathe in, but also breathe out extra oxygen, which is not necessarily what we're taught. We're taught that we breathe in oxygen and breathe out uh, carbon dioxide, right? Which is true, but we breathe out both. In fact, we breathe out so much extra oxygen that someone could stay alive just by breathing in what someone breathes out. Safar hypothesized for for years that mouth-to-mouth resuscitation could work, and now here was his evidence. Now he just needed to convince everyone else. So he conducts an experiment that would not be allowed by any means today. So he gets a bunch of people to volunteer, all his colleagues, like his medical professionals and staff to to participate in the study. His idea is like he basically wants to prove that the arm flapping method, like the current method of resuscitation, does not work. It's complete bullshit. And he wants to prove that his mouth-to-mouth resuscitation should be the standard of care from here on out. So what he does is he gets a bunch of volunteers and he's going to have half of the people be res- resuscitated via arm flapping method and half be resuscitated via mouth to mouth. Okay. How is he knocking them out? Oh, oh yeah. We'll, <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. How is he even getting them to a point where they need to be resuscitated? Correct. Because let's remind each other, resuscitation means you are clinically dead. You, do, you are not breathing. Yeah. You may not even have a heartbeat. <laughs> uh, so yeah, he does achieve that. Okay. But the thing is, it's even more bonkers because he is proposing that he wants untrained lay people to perform the mouth-to-mouth mm-hmm. resuscitation. He does not want medical professionals to do that. And at that time, mm-hmm. people thought he was insane. 
he was already going against the grain by proposing a brand new technique that involves putting your mouth on a complete stranger. But on top of that, right. Safar was crystal clear that he wanted regular people to be doing this technique, not medical professionals. This was immediately rejected by the medical community. His fellow colleagues thought it was heinous to even suggest, let alone act on it. For them, they just felt, you know, you cannot trust regular people to perform a medical function, especially one that's meant to save lives. But Safar didn't care. He was firm that regular people need to be trained in first aid and other life-saving techniques because a doctor simply cannot be everywhere at once. And more often than not, the first person on the scene of an emergency is a passerby or a stranger who does not have the whole skill set of a doctor. For him, it made complete public health sense that everyone should be trained in this. So he set out to prove that literally anyone could do this technique. So the demonstration went like this. This was filmed, by the way. I think you can see this on YouTube. First of all, all the patients were heavily, heavily sedated. I don't know what he gave them for to, to make them sedated, but that was the first part. That was step one. Then Safar gave them a carefully measured dose of curare. Do you know what that is, Megan? Hmm. I don't think I do. I didn't even know that we use this in medicine. Maybe we don't. He just used it for this. But it's the poison that South American tribes used to coat their arrow tips with oh does that ring a bell a little bit interesting does it come from a frog i'll have to look this up maybe this will be a future episode but carare yeah carare it's it basically paralyzes you so it yeah so they coat the arrow tips with it which renders the patients paralyzed from head to toe including their diaphragm making them unable to breathe for hours at a time and just to get some perspective these patients were not breathing for up to three hours as close to clinically dead as possible. I, I honestly don't understand like the the physiology behind how he kept them alive. Like were they, were they just like barely breathing? I, I'm not sure. It sounds terrifying, but 32 doctors, staff, and medical students agreed to undergo this cocktail of unconsciousness because they were curious and maybe for the sake of science agreed to be experimented on. But they also trusted Dr. Safar deeply to keep them safe. And the thing is, they didn't do this just the one time. They conducted the experiment a total of 49 times. Wow. With different people every time or the same? Group? I don't know. I don't have or... that information. I'm assuming maybe mm -hmm. like a smattering of some were the same, some were not. Because the reason why is because this became so wildly successful that he was then asked mm -hmm. to demonstrate this like basically around the world. So the first public demonstration was on December 8th. Half of the patients, as I said, were resuscitated via the traditional method by medical professionals. And then the other half were resuscitated using the new mouth-to-mouth -mouth technique by untrained volunteers. And I mean really untrained. Children. <laughs> he enlisted children, straight up. Children, Boy Scouts, no more than 10 years old, resuscitated the, his clinically dead colleagues back to life. Wow. See, even kids can work. Even kids, put them to work. Put them to work. That's why you have kids to put them to work to change the remote, the channels on the remote for you. If you're if you're a product of a of the '90s, that's why people had kids. Uh -huh. I just changed the channel for my yeah, parents to, to find the remote and to change find it for the your remote. Parents. First, yeah, step one fair. is find the remote because you don't know where that shit is ever, mm -hmm. and then you change the channel. You need the small hands, small, small hands to reach under the sofa. The couch, the couch, the couch cracks. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. 
Felix Steichen, a professor of surgery, was one of the patients that day. Dr. Safar watched as Felix's oxygen levels dropped from 98 to 90 to 80. And then as soon as it dropped to just under 80, there was an audible gasp in the lecture hall. As medical professionals, they knew Felix was slipping swiftly towards death. And that's when Safar nodded to the Boy Scout who stepped in, calmly knelt by Felix, tilted his head back and began to blow mouth into his blow air into his mouth. This is all filmed. You can see this Boy Scout doing this. Okay. Everyone watched with bated breath as they saw in an instant the color rush back to Felix's cheeks and his chest rising and falling as if nothing happened. Safar successfully demonstrated mouth-to-mouth as a credible life-saving technique, which he coined as cardiopulmonary resuscitation, also known as CPR. He was only 33 at this time. Damn. Dude. What am I doing? I know. It's just like, I've got three years (laughs) left to make something out of myself. Oh, boy. All right. And that that Boy Scout probably got a badge, too. Oh, yeah. yeah, That would be cool. That would be really cool. My resuscitation badge. Dude. It's pretty incredible to watch them do this. Like, I don't know how much he trained them, but I don't know. I just have a, I have an appreciation for this guy because usually I would say medical professionals, not all of them, but there is an air of confidence in what you do. Like, you have gone through so much training yeah. to do what you do. And then to say that someone else who has zero training, like a child, can do what you do can mm-hmm. – can make it sound like demeaning in a way like to that medical mm. professional but he had almost zero ego in all of this he was all about saving lives he's like this must happen and i need everyone to see that so there, you know that's pretty big at the time i think yeah i think that's that's speaks on when someone's so passionate mm-hmm. about helping other people totally you want you're like why can't this skill be something that everybody yeah has or is able to be trained mm-hmm. on um and i also in some ways think it speaks to really trusting in kids abilities and and valuing children i mean yeah. obviously <laughs> not not valuing children in a way where it's like put them in the minds <laughs> value them for their small bodies but more of just like you know um kids have the ability to be cognizant and capable and and know when to recognize someone's in trouble. Yep. And so why not give them the skill to help as well? Yeah. You know, it's and then that that trickles into their adult totally. life and then they're much more capable as adults. Yes, exactly. So yeah, it's good. It's good. Show people that you trust in them and that they are worthy mm-hmm. of being trusted, right? And that can go a mm-hmm. long way, that responsibility. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't just go for children, that goes for people like John Moon, who, like I said, are not looked or are labeled since the day that they were born as insignificant and not going to amount to anything in their lives, right? So yeah, Mm -hmm. that this is kind of like the crux of all of this. And Safar is just getting started. After all his success with this, he Safar is struck by a personal tragedy. While out of town with his wife, Ava, he received a terrible phone call. His eldest child, Elizabeth, was having a severe asthma attack. Asthma ran through the family several generations back, but Elizabeth bare the brunt of it all. Her asthma affected her daily to the point where she needed to get her lungs suctioned out almost nightly just to breathe. Mm-hmm. Poor thing. Mm-hmm. Safar and Ava immediately get on a plane back home, but it was too late. Her heart had stopped. And Safar performed mouth-to-mouth and was able to restart her heart. But at this point, she was she had gone so long without oxygen that she was basically brain-dead in a coma. Mm. 
If the EMS, emergency medical services, had performed CPR on his daughter as soon as they reached her, she would still be alive. Hmm. This is another tenet that Dr. Safar drilled into the medical world. Time is of the essence. In any medical emergency, but especially when it comes to a stopped heart, the longer the brain goes without oxygen, the more damage accrues. The brain cells Mm -hmm. literally start to die. And the cruel irony is that the father of CPR and advanced life support lost his daughter to the very thing he was trying to combat. And I actually looked this up because I was curious. I was like, when did ad, like inhalers exist or you know mm-hmm. come into the picture? Mm-hmm. So this happened, what, 1966, 1967? Inhalers first came onto the market in 1953, but it was still very early technology. And he had tried asthma inhalers for his daughter and it didn't really like work or whatever. So it's just, it just sucks. So that's, that was like a, so far I was never lacking in motivation, but this life-changing incident was a turning point. So in 1961, Safar joined Pitt School of Medicine with the ambition of finally mapping out the world's first state-of-the-art emergency medical service run by trained non-medical professionals from the community. But no one wanted to fund that. Despite his clear evidence that anyone, even children, could successfully perform CPR, there is still a strong doubt that a non-medical professional could be trusted to operate an emergency medical service. And it wasn't so hard to believe because the state of EMS in the United States was chaotic and disorganized. There wasn't even a name for the people who worked in EMS. Ambulances were glorified taxis that simply hauled bodies from point A to point B, Oftentimes, a patient would be riding in the back alone with no one with them. That's terrifying. That's just terrifying thought today. Mm-hmm. And depending on the state or the area, police would pick you up, or like I said, a hearse. And in the bottom, it was police. So you can just imagine. The bottom residents rarely, if at all, called EMS. There was no way they were getting thrown in the back of a police vehicle when they worked their entire lives to be out of one. They didn't trust the police, and they had good reason not to. Also, if the police were trying to nab a person for something earlier in the week and then later in the week called EMS and were picked up by the same cop, there's just no way that patient was going to go with them. Another aspect was that nobody wanted to go to the Hill District, again, like I said, because they feared that they would be robbed or worse. So that made wait times for EMS noticeably longer, resulting in higher death tolls. And this wasn't exclusive to just the bottom. You know, Black communities all over the country didn't feel comfortable calling EMS. They wanted to be taken care of by people that looked like them and who they could trust would take care of their mother, daughter, grandfather, et cetera, and escort them safely to the hospital. And unfortunately, that was just not the case one too many times. But then there was a significant mindset shift in 1966. A white paper came out that showed that 50,000 people a year died en route from the hospital due to poor EMS services. This immediately prompted funding and support from the top down. This paper is so influential and well-known in the emergency medicine world that it's still just referred to as the white paper. This paper went on to make a horrifying comparison that a person was more likely to die of a gunshot wound in America than on the battlefield in Vietnam. It was after this paper that former ambulance driver Phil Hallen received funding from the government to improve the EMS in America. And what did Hallen do with that money? He goes directly to the Hill District and he buys an ambulance to service their community. 
Dr. Safar caught wind of a man trying to start up an ambulance service in Pittsburgh, which is exactly what he had tried to do and failed for several years. So it was like the answer had fallen right into his lap. So Safar contacts Hallen, who is dumbfounded that this legendary physician wants to help him. Safar already had an extensive plan laid out from his previous attempt. So he shares with Hallen that he wanted to bring the emergency room to the patient. Treatment should begin as soon as you reach the patient, he said. They should be able to deliver babies, handle cardiac arrest, bleeding, trauma, hemorrhages, give IVs and meds, and be able to intubate, a procedure that only physicians were allowed to perform in 1967. Safar also went to great lengths to redesign the ambulance to be more efficient for treating patients right away. There needed to be enough room for two people in the back with the patient so that CPR could be performed uninterrupted. Hallen looks at him like he's nuts. No one had ever done something like this before. In fact, I don't think anyone had even thought of it. Everything Safar explained was so highly technical, the men they were planning to employ had little to no education, which is what Hallen told him. But Safar was undeterred because that is exactly who he wanted. Untrained, regular people. The entire point was to show that anyone with proper training can do this job. If we do this right, he says, we'll be able to replicate this blueprint a thousand times all over the country and save so many lives. And Safar knew the perfect way to do it. They turned the Freedom House, the Freedom House Meals Van into a Freedom House Ambulance because it was already going around the neighborhood. It already knew all the routes. So might as well just do that, right? right. And that's how Freedom House Ambulance was run by the world's first black paramedics a relatively new term being used at the time, specifically servicing the Hill District in Pittsburgh. Safar planned to train dozens of men from the Hill who had been discarded and labeled unemployable for years. It was a behemoth of a task, but one worth the effort. Because for Safar and Hallen, this was way more than improving EMS. This would also show that it was inequality, not lack of ability, that was holding mm-hmm. African-Americans back. Mm-hmm. Yet, Safar and Hallen were both white men, and although they could and would train these men, they wanted someone who could lead the charge who was also black. So Safar pitched the idea to Mitchell Brown, an educated man who actually grew up in the Hill, too, and was determined to rise above the low expectations the outside world placed on him. In many ways, Brown was the perfect person for the role because he was personally affected by the EMS system in the Hill. Right before Brown left for college, his mother collapsed. He calls EMS, and two white officers show up and concluded that his mother was drunk, except that his mother didn't drink. Hmm. Brown tried to explain the urgency of the situation, but the officers straight up told him they didn't care what he had to say, and they definitely weren't going to carry his mom down the stairs and into the car. So Brown had to lift his mother into his arm, arms carry her down the stairs, and place her into the back of the police vehicle which was completely bare and uninviting. Brown closed the doors and watched the officers drive off. That would be the last time Brown ever saw his mother alive. Hmm. His mother suffered a cerebral hemorrhage and would die after waiting 45 minutes to be looked at. Mm -hmm. This experience motivated Brown to enlist in the Army and train as a medic. After that, he went on to get trained as an Air Force paramedic. When he came back from Vietnam, he found himself with no concrete plan. That's when Dr. Safar walked into his life. 
Together, him and Hallen posted flyers all around town advertising for the Freedom House Ambulance Service. Dr. Safar said he could teach up to 44 men at once, like 44 men and women. Women were allowed to do this too. And that was our target number. They got zero people to sign up. So Hallen and Brown rethought their strategy. The second time around, they rounded up basically any person they found on the bottom streets and enticed them with promises of a hot chicken dinner. Mm. I was like, I'll, I'll come too. I know. So the people came in droves. And while they snick snacked, Hal and Safar explained what the Freedom House Ambulance Services were. In a single evening, they hit their quota of 44 people. The first Freedom House paramedics course involved basic anatomy, physiology, and biology. They then moved on to CPR, defensive driving, fundamentals of nursing, medical ethics, how to recognize and treat cardiac arrhythmias, start IVs, handle admin drugs, deal with diabetic emergencies, arterial bleeds, compound fractures, hypo and hyperthermia, overdoses, respiratory issues, and so much more. What one historian remarked as more training than any non-medical professional I've ever seen. Now it was the late 60s and early 70s. The nation was dealing with a raging heroin epidemic. Yet, for the first time probably ever, drug overdoses were rising in white neighborhoods and dropping in black neighborhoods. And this was not a coincidence. Safar took a drug, which at that point was only used to reverse anesthesia, and added it to the med kit in the Freedom House ambulances, specifically for use in drug overdoses. Hmm. What do you think it was, Meekin? Narcan? That's right. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Narcan. This was the mm-hmm. first time Narcan was used to reverse an overdose ever. And wow. simultaneously, the first time Narcan was ever used as part of EMS. And that history was made by Black paramedics. Wow. Interesting. And that was just one of many firsts. Freedom House paramedics were the first in the country to intubate a patient on the street deliver an electric shock out on the field, read and send an EKG while en route. Wow. It it blows my mind. Amazing. So were they servicing, uh, you probably said this, and I'm sorry I missed it, but they were servicing more than just the Hill at this point? I didn't specify at the time, but they started out with the Hill District, but then it grew uh, Mm -hmm. to other, but I think they were mainly servicing still black neighborhoods, focusing on black neighborhoods, Yeah. yeah. I, mm-hmm. I asked because of the connection between like, okay, there was a heroin epidemic that was impacting yep. more white neighborhoods. And then mm-hmm. there was the introduction of Narcan, um, you know, going hand in hand as a result. So I, I assumed I'm like, that must mean that they're now servicing white neighborhoods um, to to give the Narcan. Uh, no, they were not servicing. Because that's why the there's more death rates higher in white neighborhoods compared to black ah, neighborhoods. I yeah, see, that's, I that see, was I where see. the difference was because of the I introduction see. of Narcan through okay. Freedom House. Nice. So cool. Okay. I know. Yeah. So, so freaking cool. And like Dr. Safar is so experimental. I mean, I, it could have gone the other way, I suppose, but he was just like, why are we not using this? Like, it's why are we not using this drug out in the field to reverse overdoses? Like, there's a clear, like another use for it, right? So he's yeah. like, let's just do yeah. it. Let's just do it. Wow. Amazing. Okay. Freedom House was making fantastic headway, and Dr. Safar wanted to expand their protocol to the rest of the United States. But he couldn't do everything on his own, so he hired their first EMS medical director, Dr. Nancy Caroline. And you got to see the pictures of her, dude. She She's just one cool cat. At first, the crew were weary of this white woman 
they thought she was just doing this to pump up her resume, but they were quickly proven wrong. She, this lady had swagger for days and she was, she was a real deal. She didn't shout out orders from her office. She lived in those vans with the EMTs. One EMT recalls how Dr. Carolina was treating a gunshot wound in the, in the ambulance when the gun-wielding assailant broke into the vehicle attempting to finish the job. Mm. Dr. Caroline calmly protected her patient and sent the man on his way. She wasn't just brains. She was fully comfortable on the streets. Her happy place was riding along with the crews. Under Dr. Caroline, the Freedom House Ambulance Service became a nationally recognized program that was being implemented across the country. It was the very first formal training program for paramedics to be recognized. Freedom House training was robust, more than 300 hours of training before even getting behind the wheel. And each ambulance was full of everything you would need, telemetry, bandages, IVs, defibrillators, splinting, cardiac monitor, all on a penny saver budget. And so far, state-of-the-art ambulance costs less than the police wagon cars. So each time the public came up with an excuse of why they weren't doing better, Freedom House kept proving them wrong. Um, I looked up a photo of Nancy Caroline. Yes, she looks so badass sitting. um, There's a photo of her on Wiki um, Uh sitting in the Freedom Ambulance. And the Freedom Ambulance, if you guys want to look it up, it looks like just a modified is it vw yeah a modified mm-hmm. vw beach beach van yeah <laughs> with a totally. little bit of extra space of ventilation for the ambulance uh right. lights on top very exactly. 70s yeah so 70s and there's one i don't know if it's on wikipedia but there's one photo of her that i like where she's just kind of like hanging out like hanging off of the whatever the door the, yeah yeah the door that's handle the, that's exactly that the, the photo oh, I'm talking okay about. yeah perfect <laughs> i love that one it's so funny yeah. and she's wearing like a full jumpsuit mm-hmm. uh, yeah that's good really neat. yeah <laughs> anyway go ahead <laughs> okay hospitals in pittsburgh did an analysis on the 1400 patients that freedom house paramedics serviced it found that Freedom House paramedics provided appropriate care 89% of the time compared to the police who delivered the wrong care 62% of the time. Oh, yeah. But that's not what they're meant for. That's not what they're meant for. And it didn't come as a surprise because Freedom House paramedics were the only properly trained EMTs in the nation. Right. The fruits of their labor came through when the University of Gutenberg did a presentation on Freedom House, which convinced a panel of experts from around the world that there is no evidence of reduced morbidity or mortality with advanced life support conducted by physician riding ambulances versus well-trained paramedics. So in lay terms, non-trained personnel or like non-medical professional trained personnel can do just as good of a job as physicians. Right. Right. Dr. Safar achieved what he wanted to do with flying colors from all those years ago with much help along the way. He worked well into his 80s and in that time developed three anesthesiology departments, the first ICU in the United States, authored several textbooks, published 1,200 papers, and created our modern emergency medical system. Wow. Freedom House ambulance services were trailblazers and changed emergency medicine forever. Sadly, Freedom House disbanded due to politics. I think the mayor or whoever the governor was at the time did not like their service. They didn't like that it was so front-facing and wanted it gone. So it was gone. And after eight years of wonderful service to their communities, their commitment to public health and medicine will always be remembered and celebrated. To close, I'll leave you with these final words by Dr. Peter Safar. He says, 
Medicine represents an imposition of human values on a random universe, an assertion that compassion, reason, and decency constitute a higher ethic than chance. And that is the story of the Freedom House ambulances and the first black paramedics. I'm so like, fascinating. Is there a movie about this? I bet you there's going to be some sort of biography that's going to come out. Because, so, like, even just looking up Nancy Caroline, yeah. immediate, like, Google um, title, uh, website titles or article titles are like, How a Black Paramedic Service Changed mm-hmm. the History of like Emergency Services. And I'm like, That's yeah. a movie. Like, you know, that's a totally. TV show. Um, my question, my final question for you is, so what happened to John Moon? He he just mm. became part of the Freedom Ambulance Service or like, where does his story end? Yes, there's a whole, I mean, the story was already getting so long, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. John Moon has like a whole chapter. Obviously, he's one of the focus of the people. And it's right. just, there's so many people that are part of Freedom House. Um, John Moon was the one that wrote this book. And it's about him. So it's kind of from his perspective. I see. see. Yeah. And so he was just talking about how he applied for this job and just everything I'm talking about was essentially through his perspective of like the training program, how they got people recruited and how Dr. Caroline came on board. So it's just like all part of his um, experience. Interesting. And remind remind me of the book name again. So we can all look into it and read it together if we're interested. Very – I highly recommend it. So fascinating. It's called American Sirens, The Incredible Story of the Black Men Who Became America's First Paramedics. Wow. It's so neat. I mean, I can't believe I hadn't heard about this before. And that's I think that's the sad part. It's very much a forgotten piece of history. Um, so I highly recommend if you guys get a chance, if you have like audible credits, that's I just basically got this for free and with my credits and then listen to it. Mm-hmm. It's so good. Yeah, shout out to our paramedics. I'm curious if when you're a paramedic, you, part of your training is learning this history. I, I feel like I would probably so. not. I mean, it's no. probably not. I mean, probably, probably some of it is missed. I wouldn't be surprised. Just like in any edu- education, yeah. that there are going to be some parts of history that are glazed over. There is a documentary. You were asking if there's a movie. I don't know if there's a movie. I know there's a documentary. It's like in the night from the 90s or the early 2000s so this really needs a resurgence because i think it would be a fantastic movie yeah fantastic movie yeah so many neat things the narcan thing's really interesting the first icu coming out of that dr safar in and of himself probably needs a movie the world war ii aspect of him escaping mm-hmm. oh my god like the things you do that part was interesting because I almost felt like what he, yeah, what he did to make his skin like even more embroiled reminded yeah. me of the episode <laughs> of the the I know I don't know. Yeah. Uh, that, your uh, word, choice of words are so clear in my mind. <laughs> what a clear very visual. descriptive. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, makes me think of the episode of uh, the conspiracy theory, the U.S. cover up of those chemicals leaking. In oh, the Bari the, report. Yeah. I'm like, <clears throat> yeah, that, that kind of sounds like he was putting the same stuff on yeah, his skin, totally. giving himself cancer. The mustard gas, maybe. Yeah. The mustard, whatever. Um, nitrogen mustard, yes. Right. Not Damn. cancer, giving himself chemotherapy inadvertently. Yeah, giving himself chemotherapy. Yeah. <laughs> That's wild. Wow. It's a cool story. And I often wonder, it makes me think, like, are we still at the – do we still have the ability to have – aha moments like that where there's still going to be people like Dr. Safar that has to question the status quo and totally revolutionizes the way we do things because CPR Mm -hmm. and um, our modern emergency medical services 
that was revolutionary around the world. Like that was, that literally changed how we live our lives, literally. So is there going to be something like that in our modern day that is that to that level of, of how much it's changed our world? I'm not sure. I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure there will be. I just don't know what that would be. That's what went through my head when you're talking about how they originally put people face down on the ground and made them <laughs> flap their wings. Like, um, and oh, all man. it took was flipping us over and then breathing directly into our mouth with some chest compressions. Yeah. I'm like, what if, what if something, what if we discovered something like that? Like instead yeah. of, um, I don't know. But it, you know, it's so hard to think of something novel these days. I you're know. like, oh, it's already been thought. You know why? Because there's so many people on the planet that there is no. There's no good chances of an original thought. Back Correct. then, there weren't as many people on the planet, so That's you could true. have an original thought. <laughs> That's true. And, and like, information was not disseminated as easily as it is today. Right. So that's another thing. But I was going to say, like, if anything, it would be something, some, something around, um, like, all the health stuff. So, like, kale is actually terrible for you. It gives you can- – kale is cancer right. or something like yeah, that. You yeah, know, something yeah. like – that's around yeah. those lines. Or chlorophyll. You shouldn't be drinking chlorophyll by the bucket, you people. Like, people do that. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. All right, Megan, what's your antidote? My antidote is that uh, I am looking forward to taking a little bit of a breaky break uh, from the deadly dose. It has nothing to do. I love, 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 love our podcast, obviously. But it, I think it just feels so much like summer vacation recently that I feel oh, like yeah. I'm a kid again. I feel like mm-hmm. I'm like, I just want to go play. This <laughs> like that's truly what has been in my mind. And um, I am looking forward to just being able to embrace the good weather and go mm-hmm. frolic at the beach. Um, that's pretty much it. <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah. That's my antidote. And then I feel I like I'll come back from summer vacation and I'll mm-hmm. feel refreshed and we'll have some that's great right. content for you. We already have a potential next episode of Karare. I actually looked some of it up while you were talking when you first brought it up. And I'm like, dang, why haven't we not covered this? (laughs) I Um, know. So looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah. I think think we'll we'll feel revitalized and re-energized to come back. So I'm excited as well. My answer was kind of similar, I suppose. I've been really relishing my sun time. So I'll be outside and I'll Mm. just stand in the sun and just like feel the warmth. And I just love it. And Although like I'm in a place where it's literally warm every single day, I never get tired of it. I think there's something Good. really energizing about being in the sun. But that's like an aside. I was going to say my what's gotten me outside, which is what I'm grateful for, is because now that I don't have a, like a regular nine to five, it can mm-hmm. be very easy to just be all over the place in terms of not really having a start and end time and also right. not really having a set day to day to your schedule. And I think that was kind of making me feel not necessarily like all the way depressed, but kind of feeling aimless and directionless. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I need structure to my life. So I finally made like a weekly structure of like Mondays, I'm going to just do research, Tuesdays I'm going to film, like like so on and so forth. And I also said on Mondays, every Monday, since I'm just doing research, I'm not filming, I'm not doing anything else but research and like writing, I'm going to go do it at a cafe. So where I'm at, there's so many cafes. Like uh, Penang is known for their coffee. They have like very good. They have coffee competitions here. It's like big Love. deal for them. Yeah, yeah. They, they're they're serious about it. So I was like, I gotta go out. I gotta go see it. Even though I don't drink coffee, it's still a good vibe. So 
I've been enjoying every Monday. I've been exploring one coffee shop at a time and I've been sticking to my schedule and it has made me feel so much more happier. So Good. that's my antidote. I feel like we're flipped, but still want the same goal. Like for me, because I still yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. do a regular nine to five, I have essentially I have structure in my life, but then because mm-hmm. of the structure, I want less of it. I want to, you know, I want to be like, I yeah. want to go home and do nothing. I want to be yeah. mildly aimless per se and just, yeah, yeah, whatever. But I mean, that sounds bomb. If I was over in Penang right now, I would love nothing more than just explore coffee shops with you and work at a coffee oh my gosh, shop. There's yes. something so nice about working at, at coffee shops. It's just, yes, uh, I, I feel more productive. I like, I feel more productive and I like to see what people are up to. Like yesterday, straight up, there was a guy who had his whole ass keyboard on two um, like coffee tables and just working on music. Like he was creating new music. I was like, uh, hell yeah. yeah, that's dope. Yeah, yeah. So cool. Yeah. So lots of creatives. You can see like a lot of creative people. Right. All right, Harini. Great story. Once again, this will be our last drop for the next couple of months. Mm-hmm. obviously feel free to go back and listen to all the other content oh, yeah. we have oh my gosh we're at this is episode 120 whoa I think um so, so where is it i don't yeah. know yeah i think this is Damn. 120 uh holy so, crap yeah, please explore what else we've talked yeah. about and enjoy it and feel free to send feedback please that's it all right Harini, take we us love on you guys that. all right don't risk it for that mortician hearse biscuit happy paramedics day thank you to all our paramedics and while i know it's not exactly the same profession thank you to all our emts and i was gonna make a joke that only risk it for the mortician hearse biscuit if you've accepted your fate and you're just like you know what just take me away (laughs) just take the middle man just let's just go straight to the the morgue (laughs) anyways all right poison pals love it all right Bye. bye